Quick editor's note. The original version of this podcast episode incorrectly said that Dennis Kucinich took a significant amount of money from First Energy. Neither Kucinich nor his campaign received money from First Energy. The incorrect statement has been edited out of the episode. We have a bright, sunshiny Friday, but we're coming into one cold couple of nights. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with colleagues Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Warnowski, who are in a rush to get to the end of this long week. It's been a busy one. So I'm going to accommodate them and get straight to it. What does it, why does it look a lot more certain that Dr. Amy Acton will be a candidate from the U.S. Senate from Ohio. Laura Johnston, we, we heard some buzz about this yesterday, but then when the news story came out, there was kind of a major development in it that said, whoa, this is serious. Yeah, she quit her job. So that sounds pretty serious to me. She stepped down from her position at the Columbus Foundation, where she's in charge of the Kind Columbus program. And on Thursday, she made this first public confirmation of her interest in the seat that's currently occupied by Rob Portman. And obviously, he's a Republican who's announced he's not going to seek reelection. She said, many Ohioans have shared with me their concerns and the daily challenges they face. They have expressed a need for a new approach that can help them and their communities thrive. I'm humbled by the outpouring of interest and support. For that reason, I'm stepping down from my role at the Columbus Foundation in order to carefully consider how I can best be of service at this crucial time. So that sounds like she's pretty serious about about running or else I would think that uh, stepping down from your job is, you know, that's a commitment. Maybe this was just an excuse to get out of a job she didn't like. No, I don't think that's it. Look, I gotta say, she's done that already once. We, 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 well, but I think she got out of that. Yeah, um, I, she's an impressive person. We first started dealing with her after we complained about the lack of transparency in the health department. She immediately came in to see us a little less than a year ago. Acknowledged that 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 was needed, and then spent the next half hour, forty five minutes, blowing us away with her thoughtfulness as approach as this pandemic approach. So right away, you know, there's some enthusiasm in our voices that she could be a candidate, but I think quitting your job is a lot more than all the other people that are out there to the Tim Ryan saying, I'm considering it. That's a pretty concrete step. Jane Cahoon, you think this is a pretty clear sign that this is becoming a reality? Oh, of course I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I if I were gonna bet like a week's paycheck, I mean I think I would bet a week's paycheck at least. <laughs> and I mean to to make it totally fair, like with with the seriousness of this, Mike DeWine was asked about it at his Thursday briefing, and this is the guy who appeared with her every day in the spring. He said the warmest words about her, and and she was the face of you know this compassionate scientific face of the coronavirus response in Ohio, and um. One of our reporters even reminded us of this Laverne and Shirley um, animated short of them riding a <laughs> you know a, a tandem bicycle together. And then he said, when asked, he said no. He actually said no comment, which I don't know that I've ever heard him say. Usually, he just tap dances around everything. But well, I, I, but I think he has some exposure because I, look, if she runs for the Senate then the mystery of why she left her job as health director will have to be solved. She can't stay silent on that. And and she really was not 
very clear about it. And we look, we all, every reporter involved in this thing had heard that she left because she was unhappy about the way DeWine was abandoning the science and reopening the state very quickly. Uh, Chris Wernaski, you've mentioned before, she said in the New Yorker article, without going into detail, she couldn't violate her Hippocratic oath. So if she quit as health director in the middle of a pandemic because she adamantly disagreed with the governor's approach, which a scientist probably would, then he might be saying no comment because she may be saying ugly things about him in the not distant future. I, th- I think it's strange that, that this, is, this is almost a race between her and Mike DeWine. I mean, that's how it's been framed so far since there's no, you know, no real Republican announcement of anything. I, I, I find it difficult to believe I, she's been very diplomatic I think in how she has discussed her departure from the state and, and I I think she would, if if she decides to run, I think she would carry that into the race. I don't know that she would be mudslinging. You know, I I think it would have to, it it would have to take something pretty significant for her to start slinging that mud around. But what do you think? But carry that out. You don't think the glare of a U.S. Senate race where a seat could flip is is that I mean, I I think if she declined to address that, it would be a mark against her on transparency. There's ways to do it. I, I completely agree with you. She's been very diplomatic. And there's there are graceful ways to say I disagreed with the direction mm-hmm. without without blasting him. Look, I I'm stunned that he did not say something nice about Amy Act. And right. he could have said I won't support her candidacy. I, I believe Republicans should maintain that seat because I believe in the Republican theories, whatever they are today. Uh, but but he could still say she was a great public servant and I'm I'm greatly appreciative. Well. Right. And can no, I, no comment is a shock. I, I think <laughs> I think that, I think she is a liability for him because remember how everybody, every Republican that shook hands with Barack Obama was in a, in a Republican primary, that picture of them with Obama was always used against them. She's, you know, she's a villain of the right to, to a specific part of the right in this state. And so I, I think DeWine has some nervousness about being extremely closely associated with her in his, pri- if he gets primary, because, it, it, you know, she, I mean, they were protesting outside of her house with guns. They, you know, there, there, there are people who wanted to, to oust her and, and throw her out of office. And and so it, it's, it's, I, I can, I can understand his nervousness from a political strategy perspective, but at the same time, you know, this is somebody who, when she left, you had nothing but good things to say about her. And, and, and it's just, I don't well, know. And, and, and he holds himself out as this King of decency, Mr. Down home on the farm kind of guy. And we're all genteel and we treat people well. And the fact that he wouldn't say a kind word about somebody who had served him so well, it kind of runs against that. At the end of the day, I, I don't care how homespun or folksy he seems. Mike DeWine is a cunning politician. At the end of the day, he is exactly that and nothing more. So, so never forget that when, you know, totally when he, agree, Chris. When totally he agree. shucks and me and Fran and talking about <laughs> apple pies, he is a career politician. All right, good. So, That's so good. could I jump in now um, sure. again? I, it's not really too soon to start handicapping this. So, so two questions here. Do you think he, uh, Amy Acton uh, will, would get past Tim Ryan in a primary? 
And then who do you yes. think she would face on the Republican side? Well, I mean, I, getting past Tim Ryan in the primary means that he pulls the trigger and enters the primary, which is a huge question. Seriously with him. considering but, but, look, it. But, I, nobody, but nobody knows who he is, really. And everybody knows who she is. And look, you can say that there, there were elements of the right that saw her as Satan. But remember what the polls showed, even at the heat of it, at the highest level of it, she was adored. Her, her ratings were higher than Mike DeWine's when Mike DeWine's were at astronomically high levels. I, I think, really, if she runs, unless she makes huge mistakes, she's going to win. I mean, I just don't think she's such a different candidate. I don't know. If, I and, don't think people think know how to run against her. She's going to grab national attention. Like, can you think about all the profiles that are going to be written about her and all the people who are going to be coming out of the woodwork to give money to money. an Ohio race that could, you know, turn a, a Republican Senate seat Democrat? And then, Jane, you talk about the Republicans. So I, I don't think any of the male Republicans would know how to campaign against her. They would all, you know, probably be dumb and, and say really offensive things and come across as bullies, which will never play well. Maybe with the exception of Anthony Gonzalez, who's not going to run. He's not going to run because he can't get through the primary. To get through the, the Republican primary in Ohio, you got to be a fire-breathing, you know, Trumpster. And that that's not Anthony Gonzalez, and, it, and it's not Matt Dolan. Matt Dolan would make a great candidate. It, I think against her, but he can't make it through the primary. So it's very likely if Jane Timken gets into it, it's her and Amy Acton. We'll compare those yep. two. I mean, yep. you you are you read Jane Timken's weekly statements. There, it's like it's like a two dimensional person versus <laughs> Mother Teresa. I just I don't see how this <laughs> goes. goes. <laughs> I I don't know who the Republican candidate is and how they would take her on. If you if you use the Donald Trump style of attack viciousness, it is not going to land a blow on somebody that's like John Glenn. It just won't. And so it's fascinating. That's why I love this race. I think it's going to be um, a news story that just endlessly fascinates us as we watch political strategists try to come up with the right way to go. Anyway, we got to move on. We're pushing up against our time limit. It's this week in the CLE. Should Ohio Governor Mike DeWine be taking credit for the success of the nursing home coronavirus vaccination success? Jen Kuhn, I know you wanted to do the Amy Acton question, but this is the better one for you because <laughs> it's such a juicy thing. He's He's been out there every time he can saying, look how great a job we did with the nursing homes. And every time he says it, I think, but you didn't do the nursing homes. Donald Trump did the nursing homes. So what's the deal? <laughs> Well, you're right to a certain extent, but this is a bit nuanced. I don't think it's it's crystal clear. I think the thing that DeWine can take credit for is pushing to get Ohio involved early in what, as you said, is basically a federal program run by the CDC and certain pharmacies, including Walgreens and CVS. Um, they had this really pretty organized program where, where they took teams into nursing homes across the state, set up clinics to give these vaccines to residents and to staff. And the, the shipments, you know, went to the pharmacies directly. And in Ohio, they, they managed to get the first doses to people within a month of when the program began. And as of earlier this week, 89% of the second doses have been administered in nursing homes, which is fast considering Ohio has like 920 skilled nursing facilities. That's the second highest per capita in the country. Um, but they they did, um, on the downside, they did have um, a low rate of 
nursing home employees uh, agreeing to get the shots, only about maybe 45%, um, but, but close to 90% of the, of the residents took advantage of that. And, um, I'm I'm throwing the flag on the idea that he invited them in early as a way for him to get credit because the, the devil's in the details of this thing, right? It's how you do it, the process by which you get it out there. And look, Donald Trump did almost nothing right when it came to the coronavirus, but this program was great. The CDC managed it by sending the, the vaccines directly to the drugstores, bypassing the state apparatus altogether, and the drugstores did it. I think it's interesting that Joe Biden now is sending a lot more vaccine directly to the pharmacies, probably for the same reason. I, I just, when Mike DeWine stands up week after week saying, we did a great job on this, he, he, he didn't. Right, right. I, I think, like, I think people should read this story. They'll get a much better idea of how this program worked. And, you know, yes, the state wasn't the driver behind it. But um, well, and compare it, it, Jane, to the what what the state is responsible for. <laughs> how is that? Right. right. Although, so, I do, we should give them credit. That's getting better. It's getting um, better. They improved on that CDC map. And, you know, overall, age is is has been the biggest factor in in the overall strategy here, given that. 87% of the deaths are, are to people 65 and older. So um, the, the difference is, unlike the nursing homes where they kind of, they had a captive audience and they could go in there and vaccinate them, it's not, they have a decentralized system for the rest of the public. So older people who are on their own have to find the vaccine by themselves and they have to basically find a location, you know, among hundreds of, of providers. So that's where... You know, it's Which, not. Yeah, it's a mess and yeah. it's confusing and people are having a hard time, especially those without transportation or broadband. I do have to say it took a long time to get an answer. But I, as I mentioned previously on this podcast, I'm married to a teacher and it sounds like they actually have a very efficient system planned for getting the teachers vaccinated. It's centralized. It's organized. Um, I, I mean, it took a while to get it together, I guess. And I'm not quite sure if the state or the county is responsible for that, man, if it's the county, it would be like the first thing the county health board has done right. But it does seem like the pressure to get this right is changing. And in the past couple of weeks, the state is getting more people vaccinated. Yes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Dennis Kucinich made his bones back in the day by fighting off an attempt to end what is now Cleveland Public Power. Why does that make his campaign finance form just filed so much more interesting as he plans a possible run for mayor again? Chris Ranowski, John Coniglia posted a wonderful story this morning that has the answers to these questions. Right. So the story of of Cleveland Municipal Light and, and Dennis Kucinich is told, I think, in some circles in this city, like a folk story. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm amazed that people don't accompany it with an acoustic guitar. (laughs) I mean, it really is. I mean, it really kind of defined who Dennis was. I mean, stop you there. We, we ought to, we ought to write that. The the ballad of CPP. Well, Cleveland municipal light became Cleveland public power, which um, if you've been following the first energy scandal was sort of the, the, on the uh, receiving end of a lot of uh, negative, ads uh, that were backed by uh, secret groups that were funded by First Energy, um, a lot of what they call pass-through organizations that um, sort of move dark money around. And and CPP is really First Energy's 
main adversary here in Northeast Ohio uh, when it comes to electricity service. And so it was it was kind of strange, I guess, when when the campaign finance records came out and and it turns out that uh, Kucinich took money from Westlake businessman Tony George, who is also kind of connected to first energy efforts here in Northeast Ohio and, and very deeply politically connected. Uh, Tony, who we talked to has donated a lot of money to various people uh, this, this time around. Um, So it's, it's, but it's, but the, the fact that that Dennis talked, he talked to us and he said, you know, that, you know, he, he's, he's still proud of, of what he did with CPP, but, but he, you know, no one buys my friendship is what he said. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and so I, all right, but, but let, 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 let's yeah. go back for it. We should say Dennis Kucinich for like years has been writing what he promises a riveting book about the Muni light tail. It sounds like it's agonizingly long and he keeps saying it's imminent, but, but let's talk a little bit. I mean, he's, he, he's passing this off as it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Tony George went, appeared before the city to try and get a contract involving CPP that would have involved First Energy. Mm -hmm. And when he didn't get it, not long after that, he launched an effort to reduce the size of council. Council members were convinced this was quid pro quo. They're convinced that First Energy pushed him to do it, that by reducing council, he would get his way in the future. What he didn't realize as he pushed this, I mean, remember, it was going to be on the ballot. The signatures were in. That it it pushback came very strong because it turned into a disenfranchisement argument, and in the end, it was so blistering he withdrew the petitions and ran away with his tail between his legs. But but that is the backdrop here that that he was trying to help First Energy get something involving CPP, and we now know from all of the dark money of First Energy that's been used to try and torpedo CPP that probably wasn't for a good purpose. And he's supporting and his family members are supporting Dennis Kucinich. That has to be a factor in this election, especially when we're going to have a year of controversy involving First Energy and CPP, right? Right. And and it's also worth noting that George and his family contributed nearly $120,000 to the uh, campaign coffers of Larry Householder from, from 2016 to 2019. So it's you know the Georges have kind of been around the edge of of all of the the first energy uh, happenings here in Northeast Ohio, um, and and I think you're right. I, I it it will be fascinating to see just you know who who first energy gives money to, um, who Tony and his family give money to. I, you know I think it's important. I think he's a, a a significant political presence in this in this community. And it matters, I, you know. I, I think, but but you know, he and he and Dennis do are, I think, legitimately friends. I think, you know, it, I think it does go beyond politics. I think they they kind of run in the same circles. It seems uh, uh, it will. The irony will be overwhelming if, in this race, the other candidates use Dennis Kucinich's ties to First Energy as a reason not to vote for him when, as you start, as you said at the start, his most famous moment was standing up to the precursors of these two utilities to protect CPP. Well, there's a, there's an easy way to, for first energy to get around that, which is they can just donate to everybody. And, and, you know, I think in large part, I think that's why you don't see a lot of 
bipartisan criticism of of first energy when it comes to the scandal because you know they do that thing where they they donate to everybody and and you know that seems to be a very useful way to neutralize any criticism about how you spend your money politically well we don't take any money from them so we'll neutralize <laughs> our criticism you're listening to this week in the cle Ohio Governor Mike DeWine limits indoor gatherings to 300 because of the coronavirus. So what is the thinking behind giving the Cavs their second exemption to that and letting more than 2,700 fans at a time watch games at the arena? Laura Johnston, it's just a weird system where, where we have this hard 300 limit, no matter how big the venue is, except when we don't. Right, except when you can get a variance from the governor. So the Cavs got a letter Thursday afternoon that they were granted the second various variance. Um, it's a slight increase in the attendance. We're up to 2,720 spectators in total. They were just around 2,000 before. So this is 14% of the arena's capacity. And smaller venues can have, you're right, 300 or 15% of their total capacity, whichever one is smaller. So um, they're, they're right at that limit for a giant arena. But the, ch- the change goes into effect immediately. The Cavs have already made more seats available for the weekend's back-to-back game against the Milwaukee Bucks. Cavs are still working, though. The Cavs want more. Um, they want an allowance of f- about 4,596 people. That's 24% of the arena's typical 19,000-person maximum. So they're going to keep working and asking with the Ohio Department of Health and showing what they have done to make the arena safe for fans. All right. Maybe I'm going to sound dopey here, but wouldn't it make more sense to have some science that talks about what the best ratio is instead of winging it? That that there's got to be some kind of science that would say you can put this percentage of the capacity in. We talked earlier this week, the Huntington Convention Center is limited to 300 people. It's ridiculous, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're huge. The IX Center, if it were open, would be limited to 300 people. You would think that that the state would come at this from a scientific aspect saying, okay, if you spread people out so far, blah, 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 this is how the virus can be protected and open it up to everybody instead of having the, I mean, the Cavs went in and said, look, we got great air handlers. This is how we do it. We think we should have X. And the state comes back and says, yeah, we're not going there. We're giving you this. But why? What is that based on? Is there is there any scientific premise behind that? Or is it just somebody in Columbus arbitrarily going, yeah, let's go with 14%. I feel like there has not been a lot of scientific research on this. I mean, think about the Browns, right? They were at 6,000, then they petitioned, they got up to 12,000. And nobody could tell us why that was okay, why 12,000 was okay. They were just like, we feel like it's safe. And there wasn't ever any outbreak. So they were like, okay, we, we did this right. We, we picked a good number. I feel like there's a lot of trial and error in this. And the people who have the money to add the air handlers and hire good lawyers are the ones that are able to get the variance. And and the, the little folks that that can't, that don't have the money, I mean, obviously performing arts are really hurting during this. They haven't been able to have anything. Um, they kind of, they, they get well, shoved aside. Well, there, there's two things. I actually think that the venues have a case here, that that, that shouldn't be capped at 300. That's just arbitrary. Um, and, and that there should be something done to make this more scientific. But the other thing you said, that the Browns went to 6,000 and 12,000 and people said there were no breakouts. 
But why didn't the county health department do some kind of follow up on that? Why not say, okay, we're going to increase the Browns to 12,000, but we're going to track the ticket holders to find out if they get the coronavirus in the weeks after? Because because we don't know if there was a breakout. Nobody's tracing it that way. And and it's you know who they are. I mean, it's an easy thing to figure out. And and because maybe if nobody got it, you could say, well, let's go to 18,000 or more. I mean, the Browns would like to get as many people in there as is safely possible. But nobody seems to be doing the science unless I'm just missing it. I don't, I think you're right. I don't think people are doing the science. And I think the boards of health were so overwhelmed. I mean, they weren't doing regular contact tracing when somebody got sick to find out where it was coming from. So I don't think they're going to do extra work and go after an outbreak that might or might not have happened. I I mean, we've talked about this a lot. The, The systems are antiquated. The money isn't there. People have ignored public health for years. And even with this, I mean, Mike DeWine was talking yesterday about finally maybe getting together a centralized registry where people could look up online where the vaccine is available. It's like, okay, but we've been doing Uh, this for weeks. Like, I just feel like nobody put thought into anything. Well, we're missing a chance. There'll be future pandemics. This was the chance to figure these things out. And if we had another pandemic two years from now, we'd really know very little more than we know now about what capacity building should have. Chris Ranowski. Maybe maybe he's going to wait until the one year anniversary of the pandemic to announce a, a centralized vaccination registration. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, this is not just a thing of the past to like, you know, our do 2020 hindsight or whatever. I mean, the Indians want to start their season in April and they want to have fans. So let's figure out how to get people there safely. I, but I wonder if, if, you know, if you're, if you're another business that has these limitations on you and you, and you finally decide to, to sue the state or whatever, this, this actually would be an interesting thing to explore from a legal perspective. If, 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 if I was an attorney, I would be asking the state to to prove the science behind their logic and what and why they allowed twenty seven hundred fans to go into a closed arena in the middle of a pandemic. I would I would demand those answers. Right. And 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 I I you know I I'm wondering if that will that will come up at some point. Well, I just it's in our best interest. And we got all the CARES Act money. Remember all the governments that were in a rush to spend it by the deadline? You could have invested some of it in research like this because the Cavs might be right. The Cavs may deserve to have far more people in the arena than are allowed. But but it's got to be based on actual data and facts. And we're not assembling any of the data. And so it's left to each owner to kind of figure it out and make their case. And it, it just, yeah. why isn't there a task force on this saying, look, what's the science? This is international. They're, they're, every country is grappling with right, this. the Olympics, right? right? They want to hold the Olympics. And uh, the Cavs are one of eight NBA franchises that are allowing fans. The Houston Rockets have the most capacity at 25%. But you would think the NBA would be investing in it. They have money. They could say, here's how to make it safe. We have science that proves it. Yeah, the problem is, you're, you're going to trust them less because True. there's a profit motive than if you had a bunch of scientists do it. And I, and I suspect that if the scientists did it, they'd probably end up agreeing with the Cavs and they'd probably end up agreeing with the Browns that they could hold more. But you just need the data to do it. And, and this was just arbitrary. They said, no, we're not going to give you what you want. We'll give you twenty seven hundred. Well, it's like, what? what is that about? What is, you know, you're just throwing darts at a dartboard. <laughs> That's the number. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're going to leave our Cleveland schools decision to next week because we don't have enough time to fully develop it. So we'll leave it there, guys. You got plans for the weekend? 
staying home, staying inside, staying warm. <laughs> except I'm going Laura, skiing he'll be again. Skiing stuff. and hockey, man. They're getting me through this winter. <laughs> Will you ski when it's three degrees? I, I, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to last, but I bought some hand warmers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the Super Bowl is going to be banned in our household. <laughs> Why? Tom Brady. <laughs> hey, man, that guy is, it's like he's from another planet. He's not human, you know? So, right. I mean, it's, it's, I would it's, agree with that. It's one of the, I mean, there's never, I've never seen anything like it. There's, it's, like, it's like Michael Jordan, you know, Babe Ruth and Tom Brady. It's just, you, you, well, we keep getting all these emails from everybody saying, you know, you know, watch the Super Bowl with your household. Like people, I think, are afraid that this is going to be another, you know, people are sick of winter. There's not a lot to look forward to that people are just going to say, screw it. I'm going to go watch with my Or friend. they're going to say, it's three degrees outside. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's not supposed to be three. What's it supposed to get down to? It's 12 tonight well, and 10 Sunday night or something. It's going to be gonna cold. It's going to feel really cold. Yeah, with the are, wind. Are we going to have snow on top of that? Or are we? I think Sunday it's going to snow, isn't it? Or, uh, I don't know. Uh, we should check our map. <laughs> we, had done, we had done so well until Groundhog Day. And <laughs> it's not just six more weeks of winter. It's six more weeks of brutal winter. Okay. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back next week to talk about the news. 